Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 112. I'm Nigel Walsh. In today's episode, we're going to talk about data, the big D word. Data is incredibly important in insurance, as we all know, and we want to take a look at how it's been evolving. We'll cover the massive explosion in data in the past few years and the reasons behind it, the blockers it currently faces, how we can get over them and and why we try to predict what we might see in the future. As always, I am not alone, but joined by a panel of amazing guests and co-hosts. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, John Bean, Client Director and Insurance Lead at 11 How are you doing, Grandad? Uh, I'm doing very well, Nigel. Uh, Grandad, I hope he's not in reference to my age and water, but the, the clothes that I'm wearing, I'm wearing a very Grandad cardigan because it's freezing in my uh, in my room today. Um, yeah, I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm less jaded than I was on the other show. I finished my Jack Reacher marathon. Uh, I've now moved on to, for anyone who's not seen it, Boeing on Netflix absolutely phenomenal documentary and a, a great lesson on changing corporate culture for all the wrong reasons um i feel like my intro is becoming john's tv recommendations well i appreciate you mr radio times i i expect nothing else from granddad so i'm gonna find some nicknames for you as we go forward and we are also joined today by jason reichel cro chief revenue officer at trustlayer jason have you seen reacher I have definitely not seen it yet, but I, I'm hoping to get to it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely hoping that I can spend eight hours watching a guy kick the shit out of people. That's definitely what I want to <laughs> spend my time well, doing. I have John, to say, do you have some aggression issues that you need to, to talk about? Not, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Great. Great. I have to say, spend the eight hours. It's well worth it. The guy is like six foot six and built like a God knows what. He's a fantastic looking human. Uh, tell, well, let's 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 go beyond uh, Reacher. He's definitely not Tom Cruise. Uh, but let's go beyond Reacher for a second and talk more about you and Trustler. Give us your background, Jason, and tell us more about Trustler. Sure. So um, I've been in the the tech industry for the majority of my career. Uh, started in advertising and then worked my way into tech. Worked with Salesforce on a project when I worked in San Antonio uh, with this company called Rackspace. It was called the Redundant Server Cluster, and my client was Salesforce. Uh, I didn't know that I was inventing the cloud at the time, but I was inventing the cloud at the time. Uh, I thought I was just uh, inventing a new way of servers to communicate so stuff didn't go down, and that ultimately led to uh, the cloud being born. And from there, I kind of like got very interested in, in technology companies, and I've worked across a variety of them. Um, and I like to work in industries and in technologies that are solving real-world problems. And that's kind of led me to two things. The first thing that, that led me here is I um, popularized a term called revenue operations in the last five years. And I own my own company called as a CEO called Go Nimbly. And what we did is we worked with tech companies to make them better operationally. Um, and one of the key components in revenue operations is insights or data, which drives the strategy of how these businesses should be built and operated. And that ultimately led me down the road of ending up at TrustLayer. Um, and TrustLayer is building technology that quickly validates the trust needed between business entities. Uh, we're working in the COI field right now, but we're working towards a digital proof of insurance. Um, and digital proof of insurance would allow real-time verification to happen from the insurer showing up at a job site to showing someone uh, that they, they have the insurance necessary to do the work and hopefully you know speed up the whole the whole business of commerce that happens. Like as everyone knows, like the reality of trying to build something, especially in America, is often weighed down by bureaucratic uh, bureaucratic necessity, right? And so we're trying to put 
uh, things into place so that that's, that happens quickly and people can get the work done that they need to. I, I love it. It actually reminds me of a process of buying a car probably 15 years ago in the UK where you had to turn up and show your um, your no claims or your proof of insurance. And in the old days, I'm going to say inverted commas, old days, you have it sent by post to you multiple days before the uh, the actual pickup of the vehicle and you give it to the dealer and whatever else. Then it got faxed through to them. And then after the fax, of course, you could show up and say, here's my proof or you didn't need it or better still, the industry came up with things like uh, drive-away insurance. So you were automatically covered. So you removed the friction and actually getting the job done in the first instance, which I thought was a great um evolution in the product first and foremost, sorry, evolution in the process first and foremost, but then a new product to actually fill the gap to say, you don't even need this, just get it, we'll cover you. So I, I love seeing innovations like that in the industry that are using data or capability to fill some of those unmet needs. So I, I'm looking forward to digging into it more. Um, let, let's, let's start with a little bit on how data has evolved over the past five years. Um, and let's start the conversation, I guess, by talking about progress data has made more broadly. Um, John, maybe one for you. What do you think the landscape looked like in the last five years when it came to data? I mean, what have you seen in terms of advancing and uh, computing power, storage, dare I say cloud that Jason's talked about as well, connected and so much more? Where, where, where would you start? Yeah, I'd probably, I'll probably start by, by going back slightly further than five years. I think that the big change and then what we've seen is just compound upon compound of that kind of evolution. I think, you know, if, if you go back to sort of, I guess, the, the early 2000s to the 2000s of 10, this is where the introduction of, I guess, web-based, unstructured content, probably the evolution of the cloud first occurred. Um, and in regards to that data, you know, social network analysis, web analytics, question answering, opinion mining, it was, you know, it was all very kind of, it was a step forward, but it was all quite sedentary. Where we are right now, I think over the last five years or even 10 years really is we're in a, we're in a world of mobile and sensors. And I think that's the biggest evolution. Um, mobile has brought, you know, in GPS, location awareness, person-centered, context relevant, I think. And then on top of that, we've got all the sensors. I mean, you know, cars are computers on wheels. The phone is a computer in your pocket. Machines are computers in the factories. And the sensors and the data that comes with them are, and I think what we've seen over the last five years, I don't think it's a, a huge evolution. I think it's just a continuation of that compounding of more sensors, more data, more information being readily available at just an astronomical level. Jason, what about yourself? I mean, I see, you know, being in the epicenter, because I'm in San Francisco of, you know, a lot of organizations and big data and all of those things. What I've actually seen is, over time, um, all the points John made are, are absolutely true, but over time we've had to learn how to harness data. And I think that's where we are now, which is, you know, we have all the volume, we have all the variety of data, we have all of these things, what do we do with it? So in my world, you know, in the operating of tech companies, we're in a, we're actually further along if we look at that. Well, where we are is, okay, we have all this data, what do we do with it? Like, how do we make this work for us, you know? And how do we actually change industries or change lives or make things that processes better with this data? Because that's been kind of the hard part is everyone was told, you know, for the last five years, 10 years, collect everything. Data is, you know, data is money, uh, it's fuel. And then people start collecting stuff. And now we have all this information. 
but do we really know our customers better? Do we really enable our processes better? Like these are things where we're still struggling uh, with this mountain of data we have. And so, you know, as we've come up into this this new era, I, I feel like what's interesting is to understand what data means and then how it should deploy to strategies and processes in the future. And that's kind of where I live today. You, you, it's interesting. You talked about volume, velocity, variety, but you also came back quite quickly and said volume doesn't actually necessarily equal better. Correct. It, it equals uh, options, optionality, right? Um, but it does not equal better. And I, I think that's the big thing that all of these organizations are now wor- uh, struggling with. I think in the in insurance industry, it's definitely something people, uh, you know, carriers have all of this data about their, you know, insured and they still are not, you know, the processes are still opa- opaque today. But it's interesting. Right? And so. Sorry, I was going to say, it's, it's interesting that, because we talk about insurers having all this data, yet we still ask the same questions. We still have to go through and ask questions, get more additional information, get more data. So it's a bit of a dichotomy because on the one hand, to your point, we've got masses and masses of data. We could argue, is it the right data? And on the other hand, we still have to ask and go through this these questions. Now, I don't know, is that because we're not using the data in the right way, which is probably part of it, um, or we've still got gaps in that useful information. And I think to your point, it's it's about having the right information in the right format at the right time. It's, it's, it's got to be contextual. I invented this uh, way of looking at it when I go into organizations and talk to them about it, which is there's really four evolutions of data usefulness. Like, let's just talk about that for a second. There's capture and organize, there's visibility, there's collaboration, and ultimately there's transformation. So when someone talks about digital transformation as an example, you have to go through all three of those phases. Most big businesses are still in the phase of capturing and organizing data. And, they're, and they have no outcomes that they're trying to drive with it. They just know this is something that we're supposed to do. We know it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the new currency, one of the new currencies, right? And so we're capturing organizing, but we're not increasing visibility. We're not increasing collaboration within these processes. And ultimately, we're not transforming these processes or businesses, right? And so that's where most organizations sit when we talk about data is they're just hoarding it. And they're building a mountain of it for some unknown reason to most people. Um, And so I think that's the important thing to tackle when we're talking about data and we're talking about big data and we're talking about how it can actually help the industry moving forward is you need to know what those outcomes are. It's really interesting. One of my former uh, colleagues and customers always used to say that um, I I actually find it weird that we're talking about big data. It feels like a a yesterday term, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, But he, he often fought for the fact that you can have small data and be equally as well prepared because often we just drown in the volumes that we've got. I think that's true. Yeah, I, I, and actually, I often wonder that we often wonder that sometimes do we over-equip ourselves with insights that um, make it harder or otherwise to actually get to the actual thing that we want in the first place? And John, probably back to your question: when we're doing a an underwriting or a submission process or something like that, if we're taking too much stuff in, are we? carefully balancing the bit between um, customer satisfaction or broker satisfaction and actually managing the risk? Is there a point to which we go, all right, uh, stop asking questions. We've gone past the point of no return. No, I agree. And, that, and I think sometimes it's, it's, asking, it's asking the right question. So, you know, what, whatever data we can get that we can pull in without having to bother the customer is, is what we want to be going for. You know, we want to be enriching data sets. We want to be using as much data as possible so we can get a much richer, more personalized, you know, customer experience or risk base. 
Um, equally, though, I think to your point about how we then use the data, how organizations use the data, I think sometimes it's, you know, we say we've got these masses of data. All that data probably has a use. It's about asking the right questions or finding the right use. And I think sometimes that's the biggest challenge is defining the original question or what is it we want to explore in a way that makes that data meaningful. Because it all sits there unstructured and you only use it when you pull it through, but it's it's finding where is the exact use case for that. The um, the other thing I think is really interesting is the, the actual word itself. And I'm kind of, I think John, when you and I were preparing for this, I'm fascinated with the word big data in that, isn't that a yesterday term? Are people still using it, Jason? Is it, uh, is it actively used in San Francisco today or have people moved past this now? I, I mean, I feel like definitely we have moved past it, right? I think one of the key things there that I always come back to, and I've done a lot of consulting in my career and going into different organizations, is there's a difference between data and insights, right? And insights are things that inform your strategy and inform processes. Data is just information that exists there, right? And and so I think that so many organizations don't really understand the difference of those two things. And I mean, big data is important, but like the tech sphere uh, can give you any kind of data that you want if you're willing to pay for it, right? You can pretty much get anything you want from, you know, accounts, customer, IP, reverse lookups, all of this kind of technology exists out there and so many organizations put these things into place and i mean i'm, I'm interested to understand you know more in from your guys's background and then in the insurance industry itself how are these tools like transforming are they transforming the processes today are they transforming you know the underwriting process are they transforming you know who gets what you know um because i find that most organizations it's not really transforming how they do business today um and you know it's a very interesting problem which is you know, I feel like it's one of those things where I'm going to buy the souped up car and go real fast someday. But right now I'm just going to be, um, you know, capturing uh, gallons of petrol over here for the next five years. Like that seems to be most people's idea about data. Right. And they never actually put it to use. So, like, have you guys seen in your spaces this data be put to use in, in interesting and in, in, uh, outcome driven ways? It's, I'll tell you what, Jason, it's it's like you knew where we were going next because you've just teed up the next question, next section. Uh, well, <laughs> well, before you get there, one quick one for me. Um, and that's about the, the volume or the level of data that's continuously produced. I mean, according to Sintef, for better or worse, 90% of the world's data has been generated over the last two years. If we keep going at that clip, my God, we're going to be awash with it. So it's going to be really hard, Jason, to your point, to get back to those insights rather than being, you know, I often joke about drowning in data lakes, um, probably because I can't swim very well. Uh, I guess Jack Reacher could. The, but where do, we, where, do we get, where do we go from there? You know, is this a good thing that we keep doubling this, this, the volume of data that we're creating on such a regular basis? I, 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 read, I read a recent stat. I had to get this in, Nigel, because uh, it was a direct joke on you. I read that... Uh, each day on Earth, we generate 500 million tweets. I think you're probably responsible for the 200 million of those. I think so. <laughs> um, 900, 294 billion emails and 4 million gigabytes of Facebook. I mean, the, the volumes are just astronomical. I mean, I think, you know, and, and it's an interesting one in terms of the volumes of data because, and it goes back to your point, Jason, about, you know, too much data, can't see the wood for the trees, what is useful. I think putting data in the right places, you know, having sensors on car tires to tell you when they're going to pop, you know, a nut or a bolt is going to crack, useful. 
having even if we look at kind of um you know sustainability you know how much of buildings is going to be used post pandemic how much of the lights going to be turned up i think all this data is really really interesting and really really useful and i think it's basically how can you find the use cases for this data to make it relevant to make it contextual and present it in a way where people can actually absorb it and use it because because otherwise to your point it is just masses of data and and we will be drowning in it you know there's this this idea though um that you know five years ago 10 years ago if you went to a conference any conference any industry they would talk about how if you have a buyer my background's in sales and marketing right so if you have a buyer who wants to buy a product from you or you have someone that you want to insure or whatever the case might be um, they know more about you than they know everything about your organization or what your products before they ever enter into a call with you. This was like kind of the norm kind of statement. It was about the age of technology, right? Like the buyer's more informed than the person selling them the goods, right? Um, and this is definitely in the car analogy or whatever analogy you want to use. But we're actually in a different age. And this is to the point about the, the Twitter data and all of that. We're in the age of personalization now. Every individual wants to be treated as an individual and consumer organizations are already doing it. And now it's starting to seep into the B2B world where now the buyers want extreme personalization to them. So, you know, you've seen this in the insurance organization, especially like uh, in driving. We look at your actual driving record, right? And we, you know, give you a plan that's tailored to you. This is all about personalization. So this is where big data is going, which is, uh, that term's not really being used anymore because now we're talking about the age of personalization, the age of uh, consumer personalization. And I think that every industry is going to be affected by this in some way, shape, or form because the organizations that tailor to the individual are going to be the ones that are successful and win. And I think in the insurance industry, when a lot of times, at least with the people we work with, which is like a lot of brokers, their relationships are have to be strong, but really their value differentiation is price that they can work out with the carrier. And that's not even enough, right? And so you see a lot of organizations moving and scrambling to get to this personalized standpoint because people expect it. If you're on Instagram and you're getting ads served to you that are about your interests because it knows what you are, how can I not get insurance that knows who I am? Yeah, it's, right? it's, it's fascinating. It, it's truly fascinating because you can go into all these different scenarios. I sat here with a friend of mine uh, who was dating uh, recently and he said, I don't, I don't look up the people I'm going to date because you take away the curiosity of knowing what they do. If you go onto Instagram or Facebook or whatever else, there's almost too much data out there that removes any of the surprise and the excitement or whatever else. And I find that fascinating. But of course, he's not in a risk scenario where he's trying to work out whether or not a building is going to fall down or not going to fall down. I hope it doesn't on the date, right? But it's, uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite an interesting one. And then another uh, guy I know quite well, Ray Wang, talks about mass personalization for a segment of one. So you could really and truly start to build these things down to individualized policies or cover. But then we start to exclude the whole or, or move away from the whole purpose of insurance where we are using pools data and pools of risk. So one to be super careful of. I'm conscious we're way over on this one. John, over to you on use cases and blockers. OK, actually, I think moving on to the next section, Nigel, I think it's probably a continuation of where we were, which are what are some of the insurance specific use cases? And then once we've sort of tackled that, more importantly, what do we think some of the blockers are with regards to data? So let's start with the use cases. So the common ones in insurance, we've just discussed customer experience and almost sort of leads into customer segments, but we've got lifetime value, fraud, compliance, claims. What do you think are the most prominent? 
Well, look, you, you know my perspective on this. I'm a great proponent of customer first. And I think we all say, or every organisation has got the buzzwords and we put the customers at the centre of everything that we do. The reality is we don't. We still get, we still call up and they still go, you, you know, Jason calls in and he says, um, I want to speak to you about X. And they go, great, tell me your product or your policy number, even before they ask your name. And that just drives the hell out of me. And then if you've got multi-products, they drop you off to a, another team or department or whatever else will make you dial a different number. We really don't look at customers in a holistic way. And I don't think enough people do, specifically in insurance. I know there's nuances and variances and whatever else that are out there. But from a customer experience perspective, I would argue it broadly sucks. And we've got a lot of opportunity to improve it by leveraging the data that we already have. We don't need any more. It's all there now for us to have a better experience. And maybe it's not just data. Maybe it's the operating model that you've got to support the data that you actually know about people as well. So in the same way that Jason created the, the uh, chief uh, revenue operations role how and how we bring together customer success and all these things together, I think there's an opportunity to refocus around um, chief customer officer empowered by data, not head of personal lines, head of motor, head of auto, head of whatever else. How many insurers do we know that have a chief customer officer? And it's almost the same debate we had years ago around chief digital officer, when that was all the rage and fashion. People used to talk, well, did, you know, Google and Facebook and all these new big companies don't have chief digital officers because they're born that way. So I do think these sorts of things are intervention roles to say, you know, we've had the chief data officer first and foremost to say, let's organize it. But now it's organized. How are we then going to apply it to the situations that make those experiences better for everyone going forward? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's quite interesting because I think one of the biggest blockers with regards to data is is a cultural shift within organizations. You know, we've seen for years with investment banks, they've got trading floors. Um, you know, how many insurance organizations have the equivalent of a trading floor that operates in that near real time that actually goes across not just the pricing, but into the customer, outside of just the customer experience? Um, Jason, what are your thoughts in terms of, I guess, some of the other use cases and any blockers? I mean, I think the the blockers are um, ancestral, right? So like uh, most of these organizations live in modern times. But what I mean by that is um, a term I use all the time, which is very core to my philosophy, is silo syndrome. And silo syndrome is a concept that was created by Phil Inzer, who worked for Goodyear Tires in the 80s. He, his job was to go around and go to each of the different Goodyear tire operators and try to make them unify as a business. And the the each of the offices would push back on them and say, you don't understand our customers, you don't understand this, you don't understand that. So they were all operating on their own pretty successfully, but they weren't operating as a company. And now if anyone knows where Goodyear tire is today, they're not the prominent uh, vendor anymore, right? And he was sitting there frustrated that this wasn't working, put his head in his hands and was at some grain silos in, in a, like Ohio or someplace and came up with the time silo syndrome, which is business units want to work independently because it's efficient for the business unit, but it's actually not good for the business or the customer. Um, and that's kind of a, the big deal here, right? Which is, I mean, you guys were saying it, it's, it's not done from the perspective of the client or from the pr perspective of the internal process. Everything has been done from how the business operates. And that was how the old world worked. And the new world is not going to work that way. The new world that we're, we all are in, if we like it or not, is that the customer needs to be at the center of it. And the customer shouldn't experience how your business or how the industry works. 
You know, in the, in the insurance industry, it's one of these, I worked in the 3PL industry, the logistics industry, same thing, right? It's not, it's all of these old world industries where we expect that the consumer, even if it's a business consumer, right? I'm not even talking about personal consumer, but a business consumer, a construction company as an example in America, we still expect that they understand how the industry that is created to service them works, right? And how how our departments are structured and how our insurance lines work. And they don't care about that. They're, they're trying to get something else done, right? And it's not about that yet. We expose them to that because we feel like our world is so prestigious and that they should, you know, be immersed in it in order to operate within it. Um, in America, it's the tax code, right? Like it's all of these kind of things that get overly complicated because they don't actually put the the person who they, they're servicing at the center of that. And that comes directly from process gains, like um, the Ford assembly line. This is all old world industry, you know, have functions that are like this, that are very tight. Um, and what I did with my hands is a straight and narrow line, have these narrow lines that are very uh, optimized. But the problem with that is we no longer exist in a physical format, right? And so there is no such thing as a linear line for customers. And so that's what data is supposed to solve, which it's supposed to allow the complexity of process, the complexity of people to emerge and then to be personalized to them. Right. And so all of this is going around and saying like all of these old industries, they're still forcing their customer to behave the way they want them, the, the way that would be beneficial for the business to behave. Um, and I ultimately think, you know, there's a lot of insurance carriers in the world who are going to be fine by just ignoring their customer. They're entrenched, but that's not what their customer wants. Right. And, and I think that's an important thing to realize. This is always back to process optimization in some way in that we often just take an existing process and make it faster or better. But it's the same as digitizing paper. We haven't necessarily asked the question why we're doing it in the first place. We've just got on and made it faster. And I think we often fall into those same data traps when we're doing things with data as opposed to asking what outcome do we actually want here for customer experience, for underwriting, for, for, for. Um, and, and we are often missing opportunity by just focusing on speed or efficiency. Yeah, I, and it's, it's quite interesting because I think on all these shows and all the, our podcasts, quite often we come back to this silo debate. Um, and whatever, whatever way you take it, whether it's, as you say, Nigel, whether it's data, whether it's process, whether it's customer, whether it's business org, we often come back to the argument about having these silos and it not working digitally or as you point out, Jason, how people live their lives. And actually, we need to go back to basing it around the customer because you can look at some of the other problems. I mean, we had some in the show notes, you know, storage. Storage can be tackled with cloud. Um, talent is an interesting one. And we can touch on that in a minute because actually there is a dearth of talent. All the talent are moving to big tech firms when in reality, every single organization in the world needs data, needs data scientists. So actually, if you don't have them in-house, are there more are there more options for partnerships? And we can come on and look at that. Also, just the speed of tech change. Everybody is facing into that, but it doesn't matter what we do. The speed of tech change will always change and we'll always put the new systems in. But unless we get around these siloed problems and build organizations with data at the heart and data across every facet of the value chain, we'll forever hit the same problems. Doesn't matter what shiny new piece of kit we bring in or up the storage. Um, 
We're running out of time on this. Go on, sorry. I, I, think, I, I think, so just on that one, I think, I think on that one, it goes back to one of my favourite quotes, which is Justin Trudeau at World Economic Forum a few years back that said, never before have we moved this fast, but never again will we move this slow. And I wonder if we're preparing for tomorrow rather than three or five years out. So how do we move in a horizon two and three rather than a horizon one mode? And that depends on the organisation, its incentives, its OKRs and its metrics going forward. Couldn't agree more. And, and I think all of those things potentially have to change, which is quite an evolution. It's quite a quantum leap for organisations to move away from everything they've done in the past and to actually change it all to be more predictive, to, to have this future. Um, but we're coming to the end of this section, so we can actually look at how can we get over these some of those blockers in the next section, but we're going to stop for a quick break. Uh, back shortly. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So next up, we're going to talk about some of these blockers. Whilst it's fantastic that innovation keeps going, are these challenges actually getting tackled? And actually, one of these points, uh, Jason, you mentioned during the break was we never get past level one or level two. Maybe you can elaborate on that, because I think it's actually a quite a fascinating, not necessarily blocker, but it's kind of we're going on the round the roundabout and never managed to get off of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's at the heart of not focusing on your customer, right? If, if we are, uh, so the again, the four levels of digital transformation are capture, organize, visibility, collaboration, and ultimately transformation. And the transformation is creating something net new, right? Like creating digital proof of insurance or creating something that we have no idea what it is today. And that's what everybody's collecting the data for is because they're hoping they're going to create the products and workflows of tomorrow. That's why people collect data. Um, but most organizations stay at, we capture the data. So we capture the data through forms. We capture the data through going to the doctor and, you know, filling out your, your forms and someone putting it into a CRM or into a computer or whatever. And then visibility, which is then automating that organization. And so this is where most organizations, uh, stay. And I, I was reading this article and I, I can't attribute it to where maybe Forbes or something, but only 22.7% of organizations move past those to uh, those two stages. And so, you know, that leaves 80% of organizations basically capturing data, doing visibility, going back to capturing data. Now we need to make it visible. In all of my career and working with so many different organizations, the first thing if I talk to a CEO that they ever say is, hey, I need a dashboard to show me this information, right? It's to show you what? what? Like, what do you want to see? Like, you want to see that, or you want to see that people captured stuff? Like, that's what most organizations are at. Right. They're at this like, well, we did all this work, so we need to show something of it, but not necessarily asking themselves, like, what does this do for collaboration of the process? What does it do to actually transform and create net new? And so I think this is where and especially in the insurance industry, uh, and I try very hard to you know not call an industry backwards at all um, because I've worked in so many tough industries that have a legacy, um, but it's particularly felt 
I feel in the insurance industry, being an outsider who's come in and really tried to immerse themselves. One of the things that TrustLayer has done well, in my opinion, as part of our go-to-market strategy is we knew that insurtechs kind of have a bad rap of saying like, we don't, uh, you know, we aren't listening to you. We're going to change your industry. And we've taken an approach of working directly with brokers and carriers and regulatory boards from the very beginning. And that's gone a long way for to make us successful. Um, but I still find when I'm talking to these organizations, it's just about capturing, making things visible, capturing, making things visible, but to whom and what, for what reason. And I think that's the big thing that organizations should be looking at. You should be going, what do I want to do with this? How am I going to bring more people and my internal teams together to collaborate. And then what new products is that data going to enable to transform our, our business? And this is the case, I think, for the chief, uh, the, you, I don't know the term you use, a chief uh, customer officer, right? Or right. Um, someone or the CRO who's looking across all these different things and trying to uh, de-silo these things. Silos are natural, by the way. Like organizations are built uh, and they protect themselves. Animals in nature don't know they're part of an ecosystem, right? They protect themselves. Um, and so I think it's very important that we kind of understand that silos are natural and this process we're in, we've never had so much information before, right? So it's all new to us. So we just keep applying the same, same circular logic to it. Um, and so I think it really needs people in the organization to step outside of that. It, you, you, your point, your last point is also really interesting around people. Maybe John, one for you, um, are we investing the right money in recruitment of skilled people? And you, know, you mentioned this earlier about talent and the war for talent. Uh, Jason's also just talked about never getting past this 22.7. Do we have the right skills and capability to get that from 22.7 to maybe 50%? Is that a people gap? Is it a capability gap? Is it a capacity gap? What is it? It's probably a little bit of, of all of those. I think, I think the first thing is, is probably a mindset shift. I think it's to your point. How, how do we how do we put the customer at the heart, and then how do we build an organization around that, as opposed to what we have today, which is we built P and L structures, and how do we fit the customer on top? So I think I think there's a fundamental mindset shift. But to do that, you you need people who think and operate that way. If you look at a lot of entrepreneurs, if you look at a lot of big firms, if they want to build an entrepreneurial product, the reason why they do it outside of the mothership and they do it as a satellite is because they have to get different thinkers, different talent different people who believe and behave in a different way and i think it's the same with it's the same with all of this we, we need to look at what's the talent in terms of data scientists i think there is a real dearth in terms of that skill set uh, as you know once over people used to go to the big investment banks that was where the money was made i think now data scientists anybody who works in analytics and data there's a huge amount of money to be made because everybody wants those skills and that talent and the top companies, the top tech companies can pay for that and they use it you know, on an astronomical scale. So I think it leaves everybody else then fighting for what's left. Um, and either they've got to pick up the, the remaining pieces um, or they've got to do partnerships. Or I think to Jason's point is actually, if we want to go beyond just those first two phases, how do we upskill our people? Um, because it becomes more about the analytics than the analysis. How do you free up people? How do you move things into process automation and free up that talent to actually go and learn new skills and apply them differently in the workspace? And, well, I think the, the other thing here, you have companies like the one I work for at Google and many others. You know, We announced back in October last year, we we're going to make available training for 40 million people free. So 
we have to work out how we get the right skill sets and that scale to try and flood the market with enough people that can start to move these things forward. I mean, one of the other barriers that we, we've often talked about is move to cloud. And probably, I'm, um, Jason, you talked about cloud earlier as well. So maybe one for you is, is this a barrier that we see or a blocker and people just not getting there fast enough? What, what's your take? No, I think uh, industries, it's it's so interesting. This whole conversation, like we're talking about data, but we're really not talking about data, right? It's this idea that in, it used to be that you had executives and executives were supposed to be strategic. The problem with data is it requires your entire organization to be strategic, right? Because you're not having cogs in a machine or on a Ford assembly line putting stuff together to get output. That's not what most organizations operate like anymore. So you have this top level of strate strategic organization thinkers, but they have no context to do the job. And so I think it's really about empowering everyone below them to become more strategic in the way they think to, I mean, and I, this is going to go into a debate that's not really about this, but I think is really critically important is teaching people how to be skeptical thinkers again and not just continuously do their process and optimize their little box and to look beyond their little box of what's next. I think this does come down to talent. I don't think it's data scientist. Like you don't need to be a scientist to utilize data to make your job better. It's always back to the point I made about my my good friend that's now dating and doesn't want the data. He wants to have the curiosity. So is it maybe the human nature of curiosity to start understanding and, and digging into what we have today to start getting past that 22.7, I wonder. Um, John, with that, let's move on to the next section and uh, over to you. Thank you very much, Nigel. So bringing this to a close, I guess, what can we expect from the future? Uh, if we talk about data, we're very much into the predictive or prescriptive uh, annals of analyzing data here. So how are leading insurers using data? Um, so Nigel, this is probably a good one for you. So which which organizations, which insurtechs do you see as kind of being the leaders in this space? I mean, that's that's a, a relatively easy but broad question in that I think you have some amazing organizations out there building vast specialist knowledge sets and insights, uh, Consirus in marine and commercial underwriting, uh, Flock in connected vehicle. You could argue Toby at Lacquer and Team 4, insights on cycling and so much more. Uh, Saitora on underwriting. I mean, the list goes on. There's, th there's genuinely thousands and thousands of organizations that are specializing in a particular niche then you've got net new organizations that focus on data directly themselves. Uh, look at what Handman's up to with a company called Archipelago in, in North America. Um, you look at the deal that Google's just done with Dun & Bradstreet, for example, a 10-year strategic deal. So I think we're starting to see the collaboration of people, cloud, capability, and all of these come together to start to unlock at scale and pace. But there's still such a runway to, to go after in terms of how we go solve this uh, in a very, very different way. We're still, are we still going through sequences of evolution rather than one hell of a revolution? You're right. I think we're definitely still in sequences of evolution. Um, Jason, how about yourself? What, what do you wish uh, the future of data and insurance to look like? Um, I think it's, well, I mean, in all the examples that you just made, Nigel, right? That it's, it is specialty data companies selling to business to enable their existing workflows um, to be more specific. I, I think that the real thing, and I really, the thing I'm taking away from this conversation that I didn't enter into it with is, 
the, the, the role of putting the customer back in the forefront of that data and realizing that this data is about a person or a business and uh, building backwards is probably the steps that I would recommend to people that they need to be working on now is working backwards from this equation. Don't work forwards. I, I see so many organizations that I've worked with make the decisions on what vendors they're going to use, where they're going to get this data from. And no one is even talking about what it is that they're, again, going back to this, trying to enable for the customer. And I think starting backwards from that is probably the way to turn this from an evolution into a revolution, like a mutation, right? Like the way that evolution actually works is something mutates. It's not that we just keep getting better at the same thing over and over again. And so I think we need something that's pretty disruptive from a mindset perspective to change this evolution to a revolution or to uh, to actually evolve into something uh, broader and bigger. And Or you're going to see what's happening now, which is specialty companies can come spring up who, who do this. They are competitive with big, giant organizations. And then the only option for those organizations is to acquire those companies and then assimilate them into this process that makes zero sense and it kills whatever innovation that company had in the first place. And I think that is a stopgap, you know, um, that we won't see five years from now that won't exist. I really believe that if not, I don't think we're going to have this solved in five years, but I think that the organizations that are actively working towards transformation, using data to transform the products they offer, using data to transform their relationships, using data to understand their customer better. Um, I think those organizations will understand that segmentation can still occur. Because people are not that different, right? But but the old way that we thought about people uh, in, the, in the ways that we would segment people, maybe by age or whatever, is actually not even that accurate, right? It's not, it, it, there's better ways to segment people. Yeah, well, you, you go back to the arguments about, you know, people used to base your driving on your credit score as opposed to actually how you drive. And I, and I think, you know, as an industry, we'll, we'll be doing ourselves a massive disservice if we're still talking about, you know, in five years' time, once a year, data collections, form filling, and we're not using real-time data to actually actively manage risk on a on a day-to-day basis. But on that point, and- though, John, on that point, we I give you a really simple example: water meters. Before they were made mandatory or they came in for everyone, the folks that didn't use a lot of water wanted a water meter because they could see their price go down. But the folks that did use lots of water didn't want to water meter because actually they were getting good value for money. So you've got to be able to balance the thing that you're measuring with actually the outcome that you actually get at the end of the day. And as consumers, if I said to you, John, to wear that cardigan, we're going to charge you five times more, you might not have bought it. But my argument would be that the customer who bought the the, the cardigan for five times more would lead to a better overall customer because they would it would be the right fit for them. They would have made an educated decision for themselves. It's about having respect for your customer, right? Um, and then putting products in the marketplace that pays that respect back. Um, you know, in, in, in software, we talk about churn, right? Your customers churn. Yeah, I could go out and give my software away for free to every single person, and they probably would sign up for a trial. And then six months later, they would churn, right? Um, because even if I give something away for free, if it is not valuable to them, if they don't see the value for themselves, and then they're not interested. You know, I think the insurance industry is really protected because of so much regulatory uh, stuff behind it that people engage with it because they have to. It's like the DMV in America, right? Nobody wants to go there. Well, that's not true. The DMV in America actually went through a major transformation, and now if you sit in, uh, you know, you know, uh, water cooler talk with your coworkers, and someone says they went to water cooler, you know what they say now? And I've had this happen to me ten times in the last year. It wasn't that bad. 
It was really actually pretty easy. I, I signed up for an appointment. I went in, I was out in 15 minutes. Yet the reputation for this, because they never put those customers first, was the DMV is terrible, right? And so in every industry, if they're not going to transform around the customer, you build this reputation. And even if they have to work with you, they're working against you. Right. Like, and I think that's why so many people move from one broker to another broker is like, who can get me the best price? Because that's the only thing that matters to me in this, this conversation. Which links back to relationships and so much more. But actually your, your other point that I find fascinating is actually um, the expectation that's been set by predecessors based on how you interact. And once you've got it, how do you then change that again going forward to say, actually, we've re re reinvented ourselves, we've re-emerged, going to the DNV is no longer an hour or three hour journey. It's a 15 minute in out. It's efficient. And you know, another good example before we before we close out is the pandemic, I think has been so good in so many ways. Look at delivery drivers these days. We know where it is, what stop we are, how many stops before we get into our house. We can track our packages and so much more our deliveries in a way that we never expected to do so. And if you're not at that level of capability, then actually you're seen as subpar. So I think the tables have been raised so much higher, leveraging data to do some of these cool things that it's quite exciting. Um, this debate could have gone in a thousand different directions today, been thoroughly enjoyable. We're gonna wrap it up here. Um, thank you both for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Jason? Sure, you can uh, check out TrustLayer or follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, Jason Reichel, I'm always posting interesting stuff there or jasonreichel.com. Fantastic. And John, where can we find you? Uh, you can get me at John Bean at LinkedIn or you can find me at 11FS. And you can find me on email at mrinsuretech at google.com. I quite like that one. Um, thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show too. As always, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Until next time, thank you very much and goodbye.